I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at sax.com. You're a part of New York. You're so much a part of New York, Lady Pink. Hey, everyone. Thank you always for joining me here on Reppin. I'm Evelyn, your host. My guest today is truly a pioneer. She's been called everything from a street or graffiti artist to a rebel to a vandal. Her journey from illegally spray painting trains in the shadows to rubbing shoulders with Warhol is nothing short of incredible. So back in the day in New York City, the streets and the subway cars were covered with graffiti. It's where many artists left their mark. And among the multitude of graffiti artists, only a select few became legends. These artists navigated dark tunnels and operated in an underground world dominated by men. But of course, there were exceptional women who boldly ran with the guys. And my guest today was certainly one of those women. She is one of the OGs of the New York City graffiti scene. Born in Ecuador and raised right here in the city, she entered the graffiti world in 1979, standing out as the sole female capable of competing with and earning respect from her male counterparts. In 1982, she gained prominence in the iconic film Wild Style, solidifying her status in the hip-hop subculture. Now, fast forward to today. Her work isn't just confined to the streets. It's showcased in prestigious institutions such as the Whitney Museum, the Met, the Brooklyn Museum, the Museum of Fine Art in Boston, and the MoMA. Her influence extends far beyond the world of art, collaborating with brands like Louis Vuitton and Lancome. 
Ladies and gentlemen, it is with great pleasure that I introduce you to Graffiti Royalty. Say hello to the one and only Lady Pink. Pink, thank you so much for being on the show. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. You are a New Yorker without question, and you are so much a part of a fabric and a tapestry that made New York City because you started when you were 15 as a street artist or what they would call writers back in the day. And you were one of the major trailblazers of being a woman in the graffiti sort of underworld time and when New York City was still like really gritty. Can you talk a little bit about when you started? You were 15. You were running with the all boy. There was no girls. You were like the only girl. What made you go, yeah, I can run with them? What was it like to be 15, sneaking out of your parents' house, cans of paint, climbing walls, and doing illegal shit? I think that I was just born to that. I was born to be a tomboy and craving adventure and had a sister and a stepsister, and they were just like normal girls. I had to be the oddball that liked to run with the boys. And the short of it is it was exciting. It was the kind of thrills that any rebel teenager wants. And I was running with a pack of like really cute, handsome, young outlaws. What was there not to like? We were going out at night and doing crazy wild stuff and stories to tell and just having good old times, not realizing that we were starting a subculture or a worldwide movement or anything. Some of us going to art school or we were in high school trying to figure out what to be when we grew up. Who knew? Who knew? You are legendary in the streets of New York and beyond in the graffiti world. But let's start when you were 15. Tell me one of those crazy stories that you had to like go through when you first started. Was there ever a moment where you were like, oh, shit, this is scary? Wow. I have impressions as a kid when I went to paint my very first train um, in Brooklyn and a bunch of guys were looking over my shoulder and it was really dark and noisy and scary and not at all fun like they promised me. The fun set in later. But the very, very first time I'm trying to focus to do straight lines in the dark trains, it was in the middle track. So two live trains going by and the noise. And you've no idea how tall those things are. My piece was like, yay, big. It was so tiny, like a foot and a half, two feet tall. You have to learn how to climb and paint upside down and pretty much conquer your fears so that you can focus and get some good artwork done on the outside of the trains. I've done some of the insides and that's easier. A little trespassing and then you're just tagging on the insides, you're moving, you're tagging. But staying stationary in one spot for hours, it's really damn scary. So, you know, even the very first time doing that and guys looking over my shoulder, wow, a girl can hold a spray can. Wow, amazing. And I couldn't fail. So the pressure was on. Did you say you had to hang upside down? Yeah. You have to hang out a window, paint upside down, like hanging out by your fingernails and a little edge that's one inch. That's insane. Just enough for one foot. So you're hanging like a monkey, upside down, backwards, and whichever way you have to open windows and open a door so that you can hang and painting. So you have to know what goes where. Yeah. And no matter what position, because you can't bring a ladder with you. No, you're going into the subway tunnels illegally. 
And essentially, at that point, you were seen as vandals, correct? Yes, absolutely. Trespassing, vandals, defacing public property, resisting arrest, assaulting an officer. You could incur quite a few charges. All racked up into one giant dossier. Yeah, yes. Okay, you're Ecuadorian. You're immigrant. Mm -hmm. Um, I think in one interview, you said that you're basically a dreamer because you came here and your family, you had better life. You settled in Queens. Your family came as a trailblazer to build a better life, to be pioneers, to break through, leave one culture that you knew coming to a world that you didn't. So that's one time that you broke through. Second time, and I want to go back to this, graffiti was an underworld boys only club. Okay. And here you are at 15, just like you said, you're running with the boys, even though they're cute, it's like a different dynamics. You're hanging upside down. So in both cases, both you being an immigrant and being a dreamer, and then also being a dreamer as a graffiti artist, basically you broke out of both boxes, right? You were seen as an immigrant, but you have proven that you are really a New Yorker. And then you're running with the boys. Was there ever a moment in your own personal thoughts where you thought, what the hell am I doing? When people were telling you no, you said, yes, I can. Watch me. Well, at one point, when I was 16, well, we finally got our green cards. Before then, since I was seven till I was 16, we lived as illegal immigrants. No papers, none of that. We still, apparently my parents still paid taxes, but still. We got our green card when I was 16, the heyday of when I'm going into the tunnels and breaking the law and running from the law and such. And then we get our green card. And with the understanding that is if we break the law, they could take this green card away from you, from my sister and from my mother too. Right. This isn't a forever card. You better not break the law. Right. But then I had to wrestle with the thought that if I go down, I'm taking them with me. Yeah. And they don't deserve that. The stakes are even higher. Right. I had to go to places that were safe, that no incident was going to happen. And I've talked my way out of a cop car, out of a police station, talked my way out of handcuffs a couple of times. The stakes are high. Yeah. I had to really make it happen that I was not going to be arrested. Yeah, because your parents would kill you. Yeah. <laughs> so did it ever make you go, oh, I don't know, I really shouldn't do this? When people were saying you shouldn't do this, both with the graffiti, meaning the boys would say like, yeah, you can't hang. You, you shouldn't do this. It's not for girls. And also being as an immigrant, you're looked upon as sometimes less than. And I'm speaking in general terms, okay? Because my parents were immigrants as well. And I was born here. So it, from your experiences, when most of society gave you one label, you defied that category. Was there ever a moment where you struggled with finding your voice, knowing who you are, and telling society, look, you don't know me. Watch what I'm going to do. Yeah, I don't know if I've said it in those terms, certainly. But being an immigrant and being Latina certainly opened up more doors for me underground than if I had been white. How so? It was welcoming that I was an immigrant, that I was a woman of color underground. The majority of the people who were doing graffiti and stuff were minorities. They didn't open their doors so welcoming to any white girls. Not so easy. So being Latina was definitely helpful. Okay. My accent gave me away and it was just fine. I don't think they were questioning my paperwork. No one questions anything. 
you don't even ask anybody's real name. Everybody's working under pseudonyms and it's only on a need to know kind of basis. Right. You don't know where people live, what their real names are, what their social economic status or immigrant. None, they don't know nothing. Right. But that didn't play into things. The fact that I was just Latina definitely opened more doors. My husband is white and he didn't get as many doors open for him. There is a minority group of white graffiti writers per se, but maybe 80% were minority. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. This is what's really interesting to me. In terms of perception, how people see you, it's different from your own perception of yourself. It's interesting that you actually had more doors open to you in the underground world, being that you are a Latina. 
and you're a woman. And it was really interesting dynamic to know that they actually accepted you once they let you in and you proved yourself in both places. Sometimes, generally speaking, society can, I mean, we're, we're dealing with a migrant crisis right now. Perception of immigrants isn't usually highly regarded in some circles. That's the first thing. Now, that same bias and that stereotype, certainly you guys had to deal with that because you were seen as vandals, not as artists. Pink, you revolutionized graffiti. It is a part of our culture at this point. But at that time, you were not respected. You were seen as trespassing vandals, troublemakers. Yeah. So that's the second time, right? Now, the third time we're talking about right now, you went from street art talking your way out of a cop car and handcuffs, which I don't even want to know what that story was like, (laughs) all the way to having your art in the Whitney Museum and being shown and bought by the world's wealthiest people. In all three sections, Pink, you were put in a box where you were, quote unquote, less than or could have been perceived as less than. And in each time, you elevated and broke through. Do you recognize that? Yeah, I guess so. How did you not allow the world to label you as you're just a vandal? Because you're not. You've said many times in the interviews that you are an artist. I mean, so many pieces that you've done that's, that's adorned the walls of some of the most prestigious museums. Well, people feel that they need to label folks, you know, in order to explain to others. And I want to defy all kinds of labels. I was born an artist. I'll always be an artist. The graffiti education in the early 80s is, is very much that, was our education, boot camp for artists. It prepared us for the rest of the world, for the rest of our lives, how to have confidence and courage with our own work, how to be no-nonsense, get-it-done-quick kind of artist. It taught us quite a bit. That's just mere education, and we have outgrown all of that, just like pretty much the rest of you guys you go to college, you're a college student then, but then when you graduate and you're done, then we call you by whatever profession that you are. Right. Then we don't still call you a college student. Right. So pretty much that. I'm not a graffiti writer anymore. The new label now that's been invented for more than a decade or so, I think, is called Street Artist. But that pretty much covers the graffiti writers. We're very tribal. We're very family, dysfunctional family. Then there's all the other mediums, stencil guys, the stickers, the posters, the old women with the knitting crews, and there's glass and wood and all kinds of different mediums that people do vandalism with, applying work to public surfaces that they don't own. Right. And they're just altering with or without permission. It's all still street art because the artists have full artistic control and no one is really paying them and have control over them because then that's a commission. That's a straight up public art commission. And I do that too, but I like it better when I have full control, artistic control, and no one is pulling my strings and telling me what color to do, what theme to do, and to change this and change that. None of that. We just have fun with the work like we did when we were kids. Right. And paint whatever we want. And that's cool. So the new term is street artist and fine. I've got work in the street, very much like that under my own control, no funding. So you can call me a street artist. To be specific, we are of of the graffiti generations. You guys are the OGs, man, the original gangsters, literally. I remember going on subway trains and seeing some of your work. I am a native New Yorker. Tell me one story, 
when you talked about being a graffiti artist back in the day, being a vandal or whatever you want to call it, that it was an education, that it was a real life classroom. Tell me one experience during your graffiti days that you learned a lot about life and yourself. What happened? Where were you? What were you doing? And what did you learn that made you the woman that you are today? All these incidents add up. So yeah, I was going to the ghost yard in Upper Manhattan in broad daylight with some of my friends from high school. One girl, this white girl, Linda, and two young guys that I barely remember who who they were Uh from my high school and they had big bags of paint. We're going in broad daylight because I was told it's safe to go in broad daylight. And at the corner, we run into a big gang called the Vamp Squad. And what they do is they vamp people, which is they mug people. But they also paint. Oh, shit. But on their free time, they like to mug people and toys, which are amateurs. And that I guess that's what we were. Okay. You know, teenagers with big bags of paint. And that's the easiest way to get paint. You take it from a baby. We walk up on them. And I knew one of them because I had already met him, Kel. And he became a dear friend much later. But then that, I guess it was the second time I ever see him. And he said, excuse me, but we're going to rob your two friends. Is that okay? What did you say? So I, you know, I had to learn about myself there. And I was like, yeah, that's okay, but please don't hurt them. Oh, that's what you said? That's what has done. What's the, what the woodmark can I say? Oh, shit. Get me out of here. <laughs> that's what um, I would have said. Know, that's okay. You can rob. What else could I say? It's a group of 10 guys, all thugs. Right. And then it's just me and this girl and these other two young guys. We're all, we're all probably 16, 17 oh, at shit. most. Big bags of paint. Of course, they lost their bags of paint. They just walk up to them and give me the bag of paint. And then that's it. You've been robbed. Right. 15 years later or so, I hear my husband tells me that one of the guys in, in, in the group, he went on to go to jail for some bad stuff later. He had wanted to rape us. Oh, shit. held him back and said, no, no, we're not about that. We're not going to do that. And now we're just going to rob those two kids for their paint. And then that'll be that. I didn't even know that. I did not know I was in that kind of a perilous situation. Oh, my God, Pink. And these guys were like real thugs and real criminals. And they could have just taken us there down the alley and had their way with me and this white girl. Right. It was dangerous walking with her. The blonde hair and the girly hippie mannerism was not the place in this kind of neighborhood. Not in the South Bronx. You had to be true. So that's how I learned about myself is I can't protect these kids. I can't fight for them, but I can at least ask for them not to be hurt. They could, these people got to do what they got to do. I knew who they were. Right. And this is what they do. So they robbed us. But at least they didn't rape us. Thank God for that. Yeah. Thank you know. God. Were you scared at that point when it was happening? I was, I'm sure I was a bit nervous, but playing it cool, playing it yeah. chill. Yeah, I hear that. You got, we got caught out there. I should have had my boys with me instead of bringing these amateurs along, thinking it's okay. Right. I should have just been rolling with my boys, TC5, but nobody would have taken advantage of us. That's why there were crews. People worked together, painted together, and looked out for each other's back. So once I became part of a crew, I had family. I had these big brothers, big guys that looked out for me, looked out for each other's work, make sure no one got disrespected and so on. It's important to make the correct kind of friends. Have you used that rule of thumb in your life now with the people that you have surround yourself? Yes, I do. I have a big guy named Matt. He's been with me for five years, big fella. 
I bring them along as muscle as my bodyguard. Not just me, my husband as well needs that. Gotcha. Because over the years, you not only accumulate enemies, but some pop out of the woodwork. Once you're successful, there are haters that come out to bring you down to their level. People you don't even know exist. Right. Yes, we can't go to graffiti events without bringing along a bodyguard because there, there could be an incident, people get out of hand or something like that. But I am still part of TC5 and I put that up with my name so folks know that my crew still has my back and you can't mess with our work. There's a real sense of camaraderie and loyalty and trust with you that's threaded through that I think is one of your core values, Pink. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I guess so. Uh-huh. Okay. Did you think that started with your family or with your crews when you started doing street art? Perhaps with our crews. When you go into these missions, it's almost like going into a military maneuver or mission or something like that. These guys, maybe they wouldn't have chilled in together otherwise, but they went through an adventure, traumatic, emotional experience, if you will. And at the end, they come out buddies, come out comrades, your, your buds for life. Right. We have those shared experiences like that. And I'm friends with these cats for over 40 years. Amazing. These bonds can't be broken when you know you have that kind of trust. The interesting thing, I think, is have you always been this confident and self-realized? Um, no, definitely not. I was a quiet, shy kid who would never even raise my hand when I knew all the answers. Up until I kissed my first boy at the age of 13, smoked my first weed at the age of 13, and then my personality changed. And then I went over to the dark side. And I learned how to, you fake the persona first until you fill that role. Ah. So I had to fake being a, a street artist or a street kid. I learned a slang and how to behave like a little tough. And when I wasn't like that inside at all. So you had to fake it and pretend all of that until you finally eventually fill that role. I wasn't that. I'm soft and squishy. I do gardening. I love animals. I'm not a thug in any way. But that's the persona that you have to give out. And everyone's got to believe that because coming from a soft neighborhood and going to art school wasn't the best selling point underground in the real thug world and all of that. Listen, I think that human beings are always more than one thing. You could be totally opposite things all at once in one body. You could still be soft and squishy, pink, and <laughs> still be an ass kicker at the same time. And I think you probably are. One of the things that sort of I think is ironic is I grew up looking at the subway trains throughout New York and the walls throughout New York. Basically, the city, it, it's a museum because there's graffiti and artwork everywhere you look if you just take the time to look up. Now, I grew up looking at your work. I saw it on trains. I have saw it on buildings. I've seen Zephyr, all these legendary street artists. But back in the day, mainstream society saw you guys as troublemakers and desecrating public property. And now... You guys are hanging out in like the most prestigious museums and revered. What do you think it says about society and how do you deal with it when people may not necessarily show you the respect at the start of your career? And now you have this worldwide recognition. How do you deal with society's perception of you when it's not true? Yes. When we were being rebels as teenagers, we wouldn't have it any other way. We needed to be rebels. You couldn't just give us this stuff. We needed to defy society and be thought of as outcasts. I guess we, we needed that angst. We needed to fight against the man. 
Right. Whatever the man was. And at that time was transit authority, that they were the enemy. You needed an adversary of, of some sort. That was important for us to be thought of as outcasts, that we were defacing public property. But we are the public that I believe that subways belong to us. And why couldn't we color them? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if you've been back down to New York lately. Graffiti is making a huge comeback. <laughs> it's now a felony to paint the subway trains and then they'll shoot you as a terrorist before you even get arrested. You now you hold up something shiny, they'll shoot you oh. before they realize that's even a spray can. So the subways only get painted by the Europeans, by the people from other countries. That's interesting. They come, they paint it, they get their photos and then they go back to their home country as heroes. And then the transit authority has to buff it. New Yorkers know better than to get the subway trains. It doesn't last. Right. It's a huge waste of time. And if you do get caught and not shot, the repercussions for being an American and doing that are stiff. If you're European, they'll put you in jail till your plane ticket comes up. They ship you back to Europe or your home country and you're exiled for about 10 years from the U.S. Oh, shit. That's what happens to the foreigners. Okay. They just get sent back to their country. But if they find out who they are by name and then they send them back to their home country, they also reach out to the police there and inform them, this is so-and-so. Do you have any outstanding warrants or damages in your country by this guy? They do share information. So if you get caught, you could be completely screwed in your home country. Anyway, that's the only people who are painting the subway trains. Americans know better than to do that. The lesson right there, ladies and gentlemen, is don't paint the subways. It's not worth it. You said you were squishy and quiet before you were 13, before you kissed the boy, smoked the weed, and then you found your voice, right? But it still took time, even though you may have been fronting for a while. Now, since then, you have found your voice. Pink, you have not only found your voice because you've opened doors for women in this genre, and you've not only done that, you've elevated street art, graffiti, from underground being seen as bad kids all the way to now your work is hanging in these incredible elite places. You've hung out with Warhol. Holy shit. Like you went from hanging out with rats in subways to hanging (laughs) out with Andy Warhol. What the fuck, right? Yeah. You've used your voice and your talent to be an activist. Can you talk about why that was important to you and share one of your most important and proudest pieces of work as an activist and as a street artist? Oh, boy. I realize that I have a voice, I have opinions, and everyone does. Everyone's got opinions, but I have a platform. Right. I have a way of getting my message out there on big murals, and I can do activism and something political or social only as much as I can get away with. Usual permission walls, people give us their walls and ask not to do nothing crazy, nothing controversial. Right. I'm stumped. I have to do something a little more decorative. But art spaces, galleries and exhibit spaces that have walls outside like Wynwood down in Miami, I got access to that. And I do know that is Trump country. So I did a giant resist wall in 2017, the year after he was elected and our country was going down the poo-poo. I did a big, fat, naked Trump in a diaper, a full diaper, leaking onto the Constitution, tweeting how crap, the world is burning, skulls are all around. (laughs) So I did that. And as I'm painting, people walking by and asking me to explain what I'm doing there. And even 
school children, African-American school children asking me, why am I painting the president like in a diaper? I have to tell them that, well, he's not so very nice to people of color. And this was right after a hurricane and he let Puerto Rico drown and all of that. I had a lot to protest. And that's one of my favorite walls. So yeah, some of my favorite ones is when I slam the president when I disapprove and I can get my message out there. This is freedom of speech. But there's been quite a lot of others that I've done, you know, um, activism. But why was it important to you? Because a lot of people just paint. They're happy just painting, like maybe not subway trains, but like they're just happy doing decorative pieces or on canvases. But you have said time and again in multiple interviews, you are an activist. When did you realize that you're not just a graffiti artist or a street artist, a legendary one, but you're also an activist? When did you make that connection? I have a platform and this is what I'm going to do. Perhaps so being inspired by the early 80s, by the Gorilla Girls. I volunteered and did some posturing for those crazy chicks. Wait, tell who, people who the Gorilla Girls were, because some people don't know. The Gorilla Girls were very high-class women in high-class jobs, like in museums and galleries, owners of galleries, owners of the top museums and such. And these were women, they put on gorilla masks. And they did protesting for women. There's not enough women representation in the arts in general. It's 80% white male. Right. Still, if their identities were to be let out, that they would lose their jobs and positions. Right. So it was amazing that they did get together and do this. And they would do posturing by letting out all the dirt and skeletons in people's closets. And they would put it on posters. And then they would go and poster it on the front glass of museums on their doors, on their places where people normally don't ever put posters. Right. And that gets the media buzz. They've had exhibits. They've done quite a bit of activism. Anyway, I adore them and I love what they do. And I think that inspired me very early on that you can go out there and protest when there's injustices. You know, scream out and bitch and whine and you have to make noise. I also fell in with a group of Latin activists that were doing something very similar. I don't remember their name right now. Okay. But I hung with a group called the Pink Panthers. There was a group of lesbian women that would go out after hours near the gay clubs when they let out at night. There were wolf packs, groups of young men running around just beating up gay people for the sake of just fun. They thought that was fun, beating up gay people. So the Pink Panthers would go out on patrol. These bunch of really big dykes. You don't mess with these women. No, my God. And they would protect folks from bars to the subway and patrol the streets like that. I was exposed to some activism and that just regular people can stand up and make the world a better place. And what more talent do I have than to paint great big walls and I can do messages when I possibly can. I've done some Black Lives Matter murals because anger and grief did my very best mural for a month after 9-11. Oh, wow. You know, huge, huge wall with the smell of the towers coming our way. We could smell it the whole time that we were painting, that horrible smell of plastic burning. Yeah. Yeah, that was coming our way as we were painting this huge mural for 9-11. Then I got a half page in the New York Times for that. Right. Didn't paint it for that, but it was awesome that they loved it and they gave me a full half page in full color in the New York Times, said it was the best mural for 9-11. It's not the reason we painted it. We do because we are grieving. 
Our emotions are splashed out there in full color for the world to see. Sometimes it's not so successful because the housing view, whoever feels the opposite of whatever we're protesting, can easily come in and destroy your wall. It is at the mercy of the public. And it just takes that one crazy person to come in and destroy whatever it is that we did. When you were a kid, you said you loved being sort of that rebel outlaw thing. I mean, we all sort of wanted to be that way, right? But when you look back from what you've done from the time you were 15, being a dreamer, coming here, breaking into not only a new culture when you came here as an immigrant, but then breaking into a subculture with the street artists, and then going from being not really an appreciated artist when you were in the subways all the way to hanging out with fucking Andy Warhol. When you look back, what do you think of your life and what is it that you want to continue to do? Because I don't know, man, you've talked your way out of like handcuffs and hung out of trains and hung out with Andy Warhol. What is it that continues to make you continue your art and using your voice? I must continue painting as much as I can. The demand doesn't stop. The galleries keep asking for work and work. I've got employees that help me keep up with the demand of the work. So I just keep going and I keep going because of the fans, because of the young people that are looking up to me to keep it real. Aside from that, it's the only thing I do know how to do really well. I was born with a talent for painting as well as organizing events and big mural projects and such like that. Because I can, should I? Do I have to? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Because not too many people have this kind of talent or skills. So I've got to use it to the best. It just doesn't stop the demand, mm -hmm. but it is the fans and the young people. So I've got a, a good following on Instagram, but I also like to follow other women and artists that I know around the world. Right. So that I can see what they're doing and what's going on. And they inspire me when I'm like, oh, she did a 10-story building. No, she didn't. I got to get with it and do bigger and more. And whatever their achievements are, I feel like they're my achievements too because they all started out looking up to me. And because I do what I do, they do what they do. It's almost like they're my children all out there in the world. So they say I inspire them, but really they inspire me. Every time I see their stuff going on, a bunch of my homegirls are, are in Reunion Island. That's off the, the coast of Madagascar and Indian Ocean. And I've been there to that island a couple of times for an arts festival. Oh, wow. So some of my friends are over there now and they're kicking it for real. And one of these guys is doing a seven-story building. And I'm like, oh, I should be there. But they're having fun. I love seeing what they do. And it's just, you know, never ending that way. You are a powerful woman who remains active not only in your genre, You've elevated an art form. But one of the great things is that you break another stereotype, which is the idea that women are catty and can't form a community. I just heard you talk about like following other women artists and giving them a hand up and making sure that you build your crew and you continue to build your crew. How important is it to you to be a female leader that's about community and empowering one another as sisters? It's wonderful to have sisters because, you know, initially when I started, it was just guys uh, surrounded by guys so much so that I know I behave like a guy a lot. <laughs> it's true. So then in the early 90s, more girls started to come out. I started to paint with more females. 
and they are making them tougher and stronger and braver than ever. And now we have a sisterhood all around the world, but it is what you said. Women can be catty. With maybe 98% of us all get along and we're sisters. Then there's that one or 2% who are absolute bitches, who are bad apples. They have no talent and they need to bring everybody else down right. to their level because that's just the way they are. We know who they are, but everybody else just supports each other. In every given city that you go to, there's only a handful of women that paint, maybe one or two, but still. The numbers are small and we give each other the support that is necessary. You know, I wish someday to say that's not necessary. Yeah. But it still is. we got to support, hold each other up. All right. So listen, every single episode, my signature sign off, I ask every single one of my guests, let me know who you are and what you represent. I'm Lady Pink and I represent all graffiti artists from New York City who feel defranchised and marginalized and unimportant. We are very important in the New York City culture of the 20th century. So hold your head up high, proud. I want to thank Pink for her time, for sharing her journey with all of us. She is such a trailblazer, and her story goes beyond the spray paint on subway cars. It's a testament to breaking barriers and leaving an indelible mark on the cultural landscape. I'm sure you're going to want to follow her, so I'll have all of Pink's social handles in the show notes for you. And if you enjoyed this episode of Reppin', don't forget to subscribe, share, download, and leave a review. It's really the best way you can support this series. And if you want to go crazy, I do have a Buy Me a Coffee page. I'll have that link in the show notes for you as well. Listen, guys, my 100th episode, it's coming up really fast. Now, I do have a few ideas on how I can mark this milestone, but I could really use your help. What can I do, guys? How can I mark this occasion? Give me some ideas. Please DM me on Instagram at reppin underscore podcast. And that's where I will keep you posted as to what I've got in store to help me mark my 100th episode. But definitely hit me up with your ideas. Thank you always to my audience. I so appreciate your support. Please know it means the world to me. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Until next time, stand up and represent. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.